Mr. Banachek. Thank you for coming on today. My pleasure to be here, Jay. Um, wow, I didn't think you'd be coming to talk to me. <laughs> well, I didn't, like you'd be coming to, didn't think you'd be coming to talk to me, so yeah. <laughs> um, so for those that don't know, uh, tell me about, tell the fans, the people that are viewing this, about your background and what you do. Yeah, so I'm a performer now, but I, uh, I'm i a mentalist, a lot like Darren Brown. Actually, was doing it before Darren. Um, and, uh, you know, I use the whole psychological approach as well, but it's a mixture of magic, verbal, nonverbal communication to make it look like I'm reading somebody's mind. I basically duplicate what a, a sixth sense would be with my five known senses. Um, really, my full background, though, I, I, I got into this because I convinced scientists for four years, and we can go much more in depth. I'll just give you the overall run of this. Um, I convinced scientists for four years that I was a, a real psychic and that I could bend and move objects with my mind in the heyday of Yuri Gelo, of course, only to come out and explain it was all an illusion, it was a hoax, and that was a four-year thing that I did. I've exposed many other fakes and frauds from evangelists to uh, the power balance bracelets, so I'm, I'm a professional skeptic as well, and I was in charge of the James Randi million dollars looking for any psychic that could do just anything uh, paranormal under proper scientific controls and nobody passed when we put them under those controls. So uh, I'm a consultant to work with Penn and Teller. Uh, they closed their show uh, for many, many years with my famous bullet catch. Chris Angel, over 100 episodes of TV that I produced for him and um, first one to ever be buried alive, six feet on the ground, dig my way to the surface. Uh, I don't know, the list goes on and on and on, but basically I'm an entertainer. Wow, man. I mean, how did you get into that? What like what inspired you to start that sort of journey into that sort of work? Yeah, Before well, then? you know, when I, when I was a kid, uh, I guess I'll give you a little bit of background. I mean, I was abandoned in South Africa when I was nine, two brothers a year and three years old. Pretty much raised them by myself um, until I was 15. When I was 14 years old, Uri Geller was on the radio. And uh, all the adults around me had believed in him, so I believed in him as well. And he told the listeners on Springbok Radio that if they brought a piece of metal to the uh, the radio, they could get it to bend too. So I went hunting around the house, and I found a needle in uh, a sewing kit my mom had left. And I brought it up to the radio, and I concentrated on it. And I believed that I could actually get it to bend with the unleashed powers of my mind. And uh, I convinced myself it had bent on a micro level. It probably hadn't bent, but I convinced myself that it had because I wanted to believe that I could actually do it so bad. And then uh, I went to Australia after that, find my biological dad, um, and then moved to Colorado. And it was while I was in Colorado, I picked up a book. It was written by one James the Amazing Randy. And it was called The Magic of Yuri Geller. It later became known as The Truth About Yuri Geller. And the truth, as Randy said it, was that Yuri Geller was nothing more than a magician posing as a psychic. No, nobody had ever posed that to me before. Like I said, all the adults had believed, so I had believed. So I learned a valuable lesson. Just because people uh, are in a position of authority doesn't always make everything they say true. And it was from there, that book, there was one little thing in there about bending a nail. And I took that and I ran with it and I started coming up with all kinds of ways to duplicate psychic phenomena where it looked like I was bending silverware. So much so that the kids in, in uh, I moved to Pennsylvania, they were stealing all the silverware from the cafeteria, bringing it to me and asking me to bend it. And I got in trouble for that and I went to plastic wood. So I graduated. And I was doing all kinds of other stunts, like I'd make the clock slow down or stop on the wall. Um, I actually had a lady beat me over the head with a broom in her store because I did that for somebody that asked me to do it, called me a witch. Um, I used to make the school bell go off early. Uh, I figured a way to do that. There was some wires that ran down, and if I pushed my foot on them and pushed them together, they would create a short, and when I let go, the school bell would go off, so I'd be like I was doing it psychically. Um, and... 
I'm not sure why. I think I got, I, keep in mind, like, because of my background, I was socially inept. I was a kid in the back of the classroom, heavy coat on in the middle of the wintertime, afraid if the teacher called on me, I would turn bright red. Like, I was just embarrassed by everything. I, I went to the store one time and I, I bought some milk and I went outside and tasted it. It was sour. I couldn't walk back in and say, hey, the milk sour. I was just too, I was embarrassed by every little thing. Uh, if I had, if I was in a, a restaurant and I had to go to the bathroom, I was too embarrassed to get up and walk past people to go to the bathroom. That's how bad it was. But uh, because I started doing all these other things, I, I, I started coming out of my shell and uh, I, I started to be more socially acceptable with people. So I think I got a little bit cocky, maybe. I mean, not not in the way of like being rude or you know thinking I was it, you know. But it was just like I had the confidence to write Randy a letter and said, look. If you ever need a kid to convince scientists that this stuff is real, only to come out and say it's a hoax, I'd be happy to because I'm pretty sure that's what other people are doing out there, that they're, that they're not coming out and saying it's a hoax. And the opportunity came about in 1969. James S. McDonald, uh, board chairman of Nautical Aircraft, gave a half million dollars to Washington University in St. Louis to study psychic phenomena. There was a physicist there uh, by the name of Peter Phillips, and he had an interest in the paranormal, so they put him in charge, reluctantly put him in charge of the program. It was called the Mac Lab, McDonald Laboratory for Psychical Research. And um, so uh, I wrote him a letter, and out of over 300 applicants, myself and another kid, by the way, who I didn't know at the time, but unbeknownst to them was also a magician, Mike Edwards, were accepted and studied. Now, Mike got a hold of Randy, and because he had been to Key for them and was accepted, didn't quite know where to go with it, so called Randy for some advice. Randy told him about me. Um, the funny thing is, Randy isn't the one that called and told me about the Associate Press article. There was a girl at the hospital that I was working who brought it to me, and so I wrote them the letter. So when Randy called me on the phone, he said, hey, uh, my name's Steve back then. You know, it's Banachek now, but called me up and said, hey, Steve. He said, um, there's this guy that's been given a half million dollars to study psychic phenomena. I'm like, hold on, Randy. Think of his name. Think of his initials. Is it P and a P? Peter, Peter Phillips? He said, how do you know? I said, I've already been accepted. I was going to let you know. <laughs> So Mike asked Randy, he said, can I trust this Steve guy? You know, and Randy says, we, uh, 100%. So I asked Randy the same question, actually. I said, can I trust Mike? He said, I didn't know much about him. Um, and Mike and I, uh, we ended up landing at the airport at the same time before Peter Phillips uh, when we were going out there for my first trip out there, Mike's second or third trip out there. We met at the airport and we just hit it off. Like we knew we were going to have a lot of fun with this. For instance, Peter Phillips shows up. Uh, the physicist, and uh, he's got a wrist bracelet. And I asked him about the bracelet, and he says he got it from a witch doctor, and it's supposed to protect him. And I'm starting to think, oh, this might be a little bit easier than, than I thought. Now, keep in mind, I'm thinking that the scientists are sort of the enemy, and we're the guys, and you know, you know, we're the white knights coming in to save the day and show them that it's not real. You know, it was us against them. That's how I was thinking about this. Um, but we get into, uh, I didn't have my license with me. Mike had his license. Um, I can't remember how I got there. I think I got there using my passport. Anyway, that's irrelevant. But uh, Mike had his license with him. And um, so we couldn't drive the rental car because Mike was underage, couldn't drive the rental car. So we're driving Peter Phillips' car. And uh, we're following Peter Phillips, the physicist, to his house. And I look in the back seat and I notice that there's a briefcase back there. So I kind of reach back and I bring it under the dash and I, it's locked. So I pick the lock and I open it up and there's all kinds of cutlery in there, silverware, spoons, forks, and knives and everything. And I'm thinking either this guy's a kleptomaniac or this is the stuff he's going to be using in the experiment. So I bend it all up. I 
lock it back up, put it in the back. I sit there for a few minutes, twiddling my thumbs. I open the uh, the compartment in the car and I look in and there's some keys and metal things in there. I bend all that up, close it up. Um, and uh, then uh, I happen to look over the ignition. I start to reach over and Mike slaps my hand and says, I, I think you've done enough damage. Um, and the whole point on this was because we didn't know what we were getting into, right? We didn't know if we were going to be getting into a situation where they had hidden cameras, one-way mirrors, or they were just going to let the cameras run and pretend they're off. Or we had no clue what we were going to be able to get away with. So we knew that probably most of the bends in the early days would be on a micro level, which is a very, you know, just barely minutely, just a couple of millimeter bends. So what you want to do is you want to have this thing that's called spontaneous PK. And supposedly it's whenever a psychic's around, these weird things just kind of happen, like bursts of their power comes out and it happens. And that was the point of having all these other things happen that Peter Phillips would find down the line. Like I would drop a bent coin into his pocket so he would find it later on with his change, um, things like that. The students there were extremely skeptical at the university. They didn't believe in this stuff. Uh, and they, so there was a room up top where, where we were going to be fil uh, they were going to be filming us doing what we're doing. And I happened to notice that there was forks and pieces and different metal things hidden under all the electronic stuff, like hidden. I just It was at lunchtime. It just happened. My eye just happened to get, and then I catch one, and then I looked around and found more. So while they were all at lunch, I bent all that stuff up, and that kind of convinced the students, like, even the hidden stuff was, was bent. So anyway, this went on for, like, four years. I mean, they were 100% convinced by it. Um, they were given every opportunity to catch us. We had very strict rules in ourselves. Like, if they ever asked us if we were working with Randy, we had to say yes. Um, if they asked us if we were magicians, we would have to say yes. If they did a background check on Mike, they would have found out he was a magician. Up until that point, Randy had said, keep pretending like you're psychic so you have a background in case they check into it. So they wouldn't have found that out with me. Um, and uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was a, a lot of fun. We did a lot of crazy things. Uh, but in the long run, in the end, we were right. We had two hypotheses going in. One was that the scientists had lamented for years there's no evidence of ESP under proper scientific controls because of lack of funding. We did not believe it had anything to do with funding. We believe it had to do with the fact they were going in with a pro-biased uh, opinion. Basically, they were going in believing. And rather than using science to find out if this phenomenon is real or not, they were basically documenting their own belief. They wanted to say, look, we, we got this out to the world. And then the, the second thing was um, they thought they were too smart to be fooled because they had PhDs. They wouldn't take the offer of somebody like the amazing Randy who didn't have a PhD but could detect the trickery. Uh, they wouldn't take an offer to detect that trickery or come in. And, and that was kind of like one of their big downfalls. In the very beginning, speaking of which, Randy sent them 11 caveats, said don't let the subjects work with one, more than one object at a time because they can misdirect um, don't let them work together because they can misdirect. And he had this little whole list of things for them. They showed that list to Mike and I on our very first date going in there and said, look, this amazing Randy guy is trying to, you know, tell us what to do. We could never do these things. It would make you feel like very uncomfortable if we try to impose these rules on you. And they had a good laugh about it. The other thing was uh, every time we would do an experiment, we would let Randy know exactly what we did. And he would type them up a letter and he would say, look, if you're ever doing thing where you're trying to shorten the length of a fuse, you might want to X, Y, Z. Uh, if you're ever doing a thing under a bell jar where there's a rotor under a bell jar, um, you might want to do X, Y, Z. They never caught on that somehow Randy knew what every experiment was. I don't know why they didn't catch on, but they just laughed about those things. During those times, I was pretty much the one who just did everything, never said no to anything, um, like the bell jar experiment. Um, imagine there's a bell jar, 
and it's uh, in a in a, a slotted base. There's a needle underneath, and there's a little rotor on top. And they say, "Hey, um, you know, can can you get that to move?" And it's got anti-static stuff on it, so they know it's not done with static. And uh, I always said yes to everything. Mike was he was a law student. I was just this crazy kid, you know, who worked at a hospital, had three jobs while I was in high school. And so I said yes to everything because what's the worst that's going to happen? I'm going to fail. Next thing you know, I've got it moving to the left. And you can actually see this in the movie. If you go to Netflix, you can, there's a movie there called Honest Lie. It's all about the amazing Randy's life. And there's a whole section in there where you can see me doing this. And then they say, can you make it move to the right? You know, and I, I would make it move to the right. Can you make it move to the left to make sure, you know, it's, there's nothing, no currents or anything yet happening? And uh, I would make it move to the left. And I remember we had a code, Mike and I. And it was if we ever wanted to talk about something, the code was, hey, do you want to go get a drink down the hallway? Because there was a Coke machine down the hallway. Uh, and uh, in this case, he said, hey, do you want to go get a drink? And I know what he wants. He wants to know how I'm doing it. And uh, I said, no, I'm good. Thank you. So he kicks me out of the table with the heel of his foot. And he says, do you, let's go get a drink. I'm thirsty. So I go with him down the hallway. Um, and he says, how did you do it? And I said, well, Mike, you're not going to believe this, but sitting here all of these hours every day, you know, five, six, seven hours a day and, you know, half the time things not happening. I said, I just found out that I'm really psychic. <laughs> and he threw me out to get some issues. He said, no, tell me how you did it. So I told him and he went in and he was doing it, uh, you know, right afterwards. And that, that often happened. Uh, you know, Mike came up with some things, but I, I would just come up with a lot of different things. One of the experiments they had was they would sit you in a room and they would give you an envelope and the envelope was stapled shut and there was a picture in it but you can't see it you know it's opaque you cannot see through there um and then you would just sit in the room all by yourself nobody with you and there would be slides that just play continuously and it'd be like 20 different pictures i don't remember exactly how many but i'm gonna say 20. you sit and you watch them and they're all numbered and then you would come out and you say i think it's number 20 to, uh, 20 or number 18 or 17 or whatever you think it might be and they open it up and sure enough, uh, the picture matches. Or but just enough, we made sure that it was just enough above odds. Like we didn't want to be too perfect because that would seem like a trick, right? So we made sure that we were way above chance, but still way below where it might look like a trick. And I found out, and this is one thing I will expose because I don't like exposing tricks that magicians use because there's no point in doing that. I don't see a point in doing that. And people often say to me, Banachek, why don't you teach the scientists how to do these tricks? Well, I have 10 methods for bending a key. I teach them one method and um, they see somebody else using a different method, they're going to think that's real. Much better to bring somebody like me in who could detect the trickery, the body language, the movements and so forth, so I know exactly what's going on and I can tell them. But anyway, back to the, uh, the, the, the picture. I realized, because I'm sitting in the room all by myself, that I can open the staples, pull the staples out, put them in the ashtray, look at the pictures, see what it was, push it back in, push the staples through and close them up. So now I know exactly which picture it is, right? So it's simple, easy. I tell Mike how I'm doing it, but I didn't tell him everything, unfortunately. So Mike's in there sitting and he's taking out the staples and I forgot to tell him I put them in the ashtray. So he's putting it on the arm of the chair and then he bumps the chair and he loses a couple of staples. So now he's got an envelope with staples in it, but there's like two or three staples missing. And so he comes back in and he, he quick thinking on Mike's part. He says, I think it's number four. And he miscalls it because he doesn't want it to definitely doesn't want this any heat on this envelope. And he starts to tear it open to that point. And they say, no, 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 you can't open it. And then he hands it to him. They tear it open the rest of the way. But anyway, 
after all these years of doing this, we came out and we had a huge press conference at Time Life Building in New York where we explained that everything we had done was an illusion. Um, and uh, it became, it was huge. I mean, it shut down a lot of funding for parapsychology, which, which really wasn't our intent to shut down the funding. It was our intent for the scientists to start looking outside and go and get the help they need when it came to this type of phenomena and to use proper science as opposed to just, you know, documenting their own belief system. And we ended up in almost every single basic psychology textbook. There was a picture of me, Randy, and Mike, and it was called Project Alpha. You can look that up online. Sorry, went on forever no, no, with that one. That was interesting, man. Nice, uh, good to to hear sort of the the first steps in in your journey. Um, how yeah. did you learn those skills? Like, obviously, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, did you read them somewhere or, or whatever? No. So here's the interesting thing, right? It's like some people can sit down and play the piano and they just play brilliantly, and other people they take lessons they can never get it quite right. I'm really lucky. I mean, this was just, it, I, I don't know if it's because when I was a kid, I always had to think outside the box, you know, to, to get things accomplished because we didn't have any money. Um, you know, but I always did it. I tried to do it ethically other than the times that I used to jump off a bridge into a train to get apples, you know, but that wasn't so ethical, but I'm sure they did miss a couple of apples. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, I'm a, I'm a problem solver. That's where, that's one of my big strengths. You know, it's why I work for Chris Angel and Penn and Teller and other magicians around the world and create stuff. I mean, I did over 100 episodes for Chris Angel on television. David Blaine opened his second TV special with one of my effects. You know, Darren Brown has performed, you know, a few of my effects. Um, so it's, uh, I'm just a problem solver. The hardest part is coming up with a new idea of something you want to do. The methods are easy for me. I can come up with five, six, seven methods for doing something. It's just instinctive for me. I never learned from anybody. I stayed away from magicians for years. Many, many years I stayed away from magicians. I didn't even know there was a category of magic called mentalism when I started out. All I knew is that there were psychics out there that were conning people and they were using trickery to do so. That's, that's all that I knew. Uh, I put my first show together. If you ever see anybody, it's funny. In my first show, I had a couple of Russian roulettes. One was, was nitric acid and water. And in the same show, which I look back now, I go, oh, my God, what was I thinking? was a Russian roulette with knives. I'm the very first magician mentalist ever to do a Russian roulette with knives. And if you go to YouTube, Vimeo, any of those, you put a knife roulette, you're going to see magicians that have taken their hand and stuck it through a, a knife or a nail, a piece of glass. That's all based upon what I came up with originally. Um so yeah, it's it's just it's just instinctive for me. I, I this is how bad it was, right? And my social awkwardness back then. I did a show at a mall, Washington Mall in Washington, Pennsylvania, and there's still a, a stain on the. Uh, even though the mall's closed, I've snuck in since then. Now this is back in the 1970s. Now there's still a stain on the marble floor from my nitric acid when I did that effect because some of it spilt over when I put the uh, the, the iron filings in it. Basically, that trick is. You have five glasses. They're all water except for one is nitric acid. They all look identical. I'm blindfolded. People mix them up. I say, give me number one, and I drink some of it. Bring me number four until there's one left. And then we pour iron filings in each one. The last one actually has the acid in it, and it reacts, the one that I left behind. Um, so I'm doing all these tricks and all original stuff that I've created because I don't know any other magicians. And there's a magician that comes there, and his name was Mac Picnic. And Mac sees it and says, man, this is great. This is fantastic. Uh, you know, you have to come do this magic convention in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. 
And uh, I, I, I go, okay, fine, you know. And I'm thinking every magician, I don't know anything about magic. I'm thinking every big magician in the world famous is going to be there because it's a magic convention, right? Well, yeah. that's not the case, but this is the way I built it up in my head. And I'm like uh, 18 years old or something like that, I think. 70, no, I have to be 17 years old. And um, I'm too embarrassed to do my own stuff. But this is why the guy hired me because he saw that. But I don't know this. So I go hunting around and I find this place called Lutan. It's a very famous magic shop in New York City, you know, around forever. And I, you have to buy a catalog, a big fat catalog. And I go through it and I pick out all this stuff. I don't have any money, but I save money and I buy this stuff. I'm thinking if it's in a magic book, you know, if it's at a magic store, it's got to be good, right? They don't sell crap. How wrong was I, right? So I get to the magic convention. I do all this stuff on stage and I bomb. I mean, it is so bad. Like you just say, this is horrible because the stuff is just crap. It was terrible. So uh, I stayed away from magicians for about another five years, which was really good. It, it, it allowed me to be original and creative in my thinking. So, yeah. It's mad how you bombed like on your first one and that kind of put you off for, for five yeah. years. It's kind it was of, good. But it was good. It was good because I stayed creative. I stayed original as a result of that. And I still use a lot of things that I created back then. And I put a lot of those in different books that I write. I have like the Psychological Subtlety series, uh, Psychophysiological Thought Reading, and Tree Thoughts. I have all these different books that I write for magicians. And all that stuff pretty much came from those years. Although I add to it, I, I refine those techniques through the years as I do things. So I've got to ask you, you know David Blaine? Um, yeah. He done that like frozen ice block thing, I think. And, yeah. Uh, and um, about 40 days in a box or whatever. Buried alive, the box over in the UK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I know who actually, it's somebody over there. I, can't, I don't know if I can say who, I probably can't. But the funniest thing was that was when the guy with the helicopter went around with a hamburger hanging from it. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, I, I'm sure Blaine probably laughed about it too. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, is that is that real? Like, is what he's doing real? Like, that's that's what I mean. Is he putting his body under like serious pressures? Is he actually going? I'm going for forty days in a box, or obviously making himself freezing cold? Because I don't yeah, get it like, the illusion. It depends. It. It, it depends which one he's doing, but yeah, it's real. Um, there may be added elements you don't know to help him survive a little bit, but it's still extremely uh, dangerous and uh, strenuous on the body. And yeah, you know, you got to give the guy a lot of credit for those things. Yeah. Because he like pushed the uh, long thing. Like I watched him with Ricky Gervais, I think, and he like pushed this long short needle. needle for his arm. Yeah, I'm like. Yeah. The interesting thing about Blaine is he has he's he blends reality with illusion. Like so, there's a lot of things that he does that are illusion, but he does some things that are real, which I think in some ways makes people tend to think that those things that are illusion are real as well. Yeah. But yeah, some of, some of the stuff with the needles that he pushes through his arms and his body, he actually does those things. He, and 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 there are people. There's a lot of people out there. Uh, a few years ago, I went with a girlfriend on uh, Valentine's Day. Uh, I live in Las Vegas, and uh, we went to go see a guy. This is going to sound so weird. We didn't go to see this. We went to go pick up a paycheck from her, but these are the friends type of people that I have. I have a very eclectic group of friends, that, from millionaires to bizarrest to a little everything. So we show up to go pick up the check, and uh, there's a guy with, uh, with wings in a diaper, and he's being hung by, hung by naked other than that being hung by hooks from his nipples and his legs and he's swinging back and forth 
this was Valentine's Day, so he's dressed up like a cherub, but he's got big hooks through his skin, like literally through his skin, and he's stretching up and everything else. So we did a version of that with Chris Angel, where Chris uh, was hanging from a helicopter, and he had hooks in his back, and that was real. That, that was absolutely 100% real. The worst part is in the end, when you come down, you have to push out the air. So as you're pushing the air out of those holes, blood's coming out and everything else. So, yeah. So what's yeah. it like um, being uh, a mentalist? Is it like quite lonely sometimes? Or um, you do a lot of studying and so like a lot of practicing? I, I, yeah, I don't really. Um, the hard part is like I'm doing a new show here in Rochester right now, Rochester, New York in the U.S. And um, it's a whole new show. So we have lot new lines, new new pieces. That's always hard for me to learn new lines. You know, some people just pick that up. I've always had a problem with that. So coming out with a new line stuff, but that, the performance aspect of it, it's pretty instinctive for me. Um, I don't have to rehearse all the time because I kind of know the effects that I'm doing. But if it's a new effect or something, uh, yeah, you have to rehearse it. You have to re re rehearse the blocking and stuff like that. It's not really lonely in that aspect. Although for me personally, I always, I don't know, I think it might be because of my childhood. I tend to, you know, want some validation through like, as a, a particular person as opposed to just everybody you know anybody can just tell you oh that's great that was wonderful being there amazed because they don't know what you're doing but you want to share your accomplishments with 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 an individual you know and and so maybe in that aspect but no nah, not not really lonely i have a lot of great great friends and uh like i said just eclectic groups of people that are really fantastic in their own way no man, fair enough like i just thought obviously the the practicing process might have been um, where you're just like cut off from everything else, but I assume not. Obviously, it's it, it, good in your field. Yeah. You know, you're like top of the top of the food chain, basically. So yeah, no, you know what it is? It's about organization. Okay, so I have my own podcast. You know, uh, it's on iTunes, Banachek's Brain, and um, I've got to take time to do that every week, right? Uh, I got to take time to put out pods. You got to take time to put out social media. You have to take time to do all those. You know, all my social media is Banachek, except for Instagram, which is mentalist underscore Banachek. Somebody, I'm not sure why I took my name, but it's okay. Uh, the only other Banacheks I know of, uh, one of them, which is B-A-N-A-C-H-E-K, not C-E-K, which is the Polish spelling of it, C-E-K. I have C-H-E-K, um, was a racehorse. A, uh, a band and in the UK there was a construction company that had the Banachek website for quite a few years like four or five years they did nothing with it and so I just sat there and waited every time it was about to come up and for sale you know like they, they hadn't paid and finally they didn't so I grabbed it and I was able to get it but that's the only other Banacheks I know usually if somebody has a Banachek site they're basically trying to get some of my people to go to them so and you know hey it is what it is right yeah, yeah. now you talk you talk about the lonely thing though it is kind of scary sometimes like my manager tyus tyus france he has to uh he, he takes all my calls now and he has been very much surprised by the amount of crazy calls that he gets sometimes like about specific things I was back when I was doing Project Alpha, right towards the very end, um, I came to the UK. I'm, I'm from England originally, Middlesex, Hayes up that way. I was, I was born up there and lived up there. Um, and I go back. I have a brother over there. My mom lived over there for a long time. She's over in Ireland now. Uh, so I make it back over there once or twice a year. I have a some good group of friends over there as well. But uh, when we were doing Project Alpha, I went to a couple of bars and I, I met the Scottish girl. 
and beautiful girl, absolutely gorgeous. She was bartending. And she started telling me that she was trying to find herself and she was thinking about joining Harry Krishna's and all this stuff. And so I just I started talking about skepticism and everything to her and she wanted to show me around the town when she got off. So she got off work, uh, took me around the town. We went out again the next night. I think we, we might have kissed. That was about it, you know. Uh, and then I came back to the United States. I started dating a girl in the U.S., and this girl started sending me uh, letters from, from England. You know, she's Scottish. She's sending me these letters saying, hey, uh, if you could send me a letter saying, you know, you're going to put me up and, and uh, you know, I can get to see you while I'm over there or, or just something that would help me get my visa that I at least know somebody over there. And I wrote her a letter back and I said, well, I don't know if that's a good idea. I'm dating somebody and I don't think they would fully understand. And I just kept getting these letters. So I started ignoring them. I go out of town and one day I come back and there's a handwritten letter from her in my mailbox and it's not in an envelope, meaning she is here. She has flown over. She is upstairs at my neighbor's house waiting for me to come home. I, um, I go up, I get her, I bring her downstairs and I talk to her and I said, why did you come over? I told you not to come over. And she told me, she said, I went to a seance. Elvis Presley came back from the dead and told me that I needed to fly over here and marry you. I was like, you have a ticket back? Yeah. Where are you staying? She told me. I took her back to her hotel. It scared the heck out of me. It was like, here's this person who thinks Elvis came back from the dead and came over here to marry and Maybe she's going to kill me next. I don't know. I was young, so I was like really, really scared. So um, I took her back to the hotel, kind of stayed away. And about a week later, I had some friends in town who were mad at me. And I was like, why are you angry at me? They said, that poor girl, she came all the way over to England uh, to see you, and you just, like, ignored her. I'm like, yeah, she scared the heck out of me. So I get a lot of stuff, weird stuff like that that happens. So sometimes it's good. It might be good to be lonely sometimes. <laughs> can imagine. Yeah. Um, yeah. What do you feel has been your best performance for yourself where you've come off and been like, yeah, I smashed that today? Um. I really can't tell you that. I mean, I've done so many. I, when I was in the college market, I used to do like 175 college shows a year. So they kind of all blend. Um, and people often say to me, what's your favorite effect in a performance? One night, it could be when I'm blindfolded. Uh, you know, I'm doing the blindfold, my blindfold routine. Another night, it could be when I'm doing the Russian roulette with knives. Another night, it might just be where I'm reading the thoughts of the audience. Every night, it depends on the reaction of the audience. I don't, ha I can't point out any one particular show because um, I get standing ovations, you know, pretty consistently, um, you know, all around the world. So it's like, it's there's not one particular show that I can remember over all of the others that I've done so much. I performed on planes, I've uh, airplanes. I performed on a train, uh, cruise ships. I. I you know, there's pretty much, I think the only place I haven't performed is like in a helicopter. That's pretty much it. Uh, so, yeah, it's there's nothing. You know, I have memorable things, moments, of course, like, like the one time I did a train. So here's the thing, right? I'm performing for a corporate group on a train from Houston, Texas to Galveston, Texas. It's a special run that they, they just opened up. And there's this corporate company who's rented out uh, two complete cars for all of those, their people. I show up. And as I show up, the train is leaving. So I've missed the train, which is usually means something else. But I missed the train, all right? 
Uh, and I tell the conductor, I said, oh, I'm supposed to be on that. Yeah, that the, the guy at this the train station, I tell him, and he says, I can help you. He says, there's a place across town where the train slows down to a crawl. Hop in my truck. So I hop in his truck. We go all the way across town. As the train slows down, I run out. I jump on the train. I get in through the back. And I wait just a little bit till the train is going full speed again. And then I walk into the room. And they're like, how the heck did you get here? So it was real. That was like real magic to those people because I know I was not on that train. They had no clue how I could have got on that train and been there. So, yeah. <laughs> I can just picture faces just like jaws drop. Like, oh yeah. Oh, my God, like, this, this guy's real. <laughs> yeah, exactly right, right? Yeah. <laughs> so um, how do you feel about being sort of rated number one in the world, like the guy in your field? Obviously, everyone seems to uh, talk about your work and... Um, I've obviously read up on uh, and watched a few interviews of other mentalists and they always kind of drop your name in there. So how does that feel to you? Are you kind of like great or you're not really too fussed? No, you know, it's 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 very complimentary. It's very, very nice. It's a high standard to live up to because it's really hard to try out new things sometimes because you don't want to fail because you have a reputation. Um, it's this thing too that becomes limitations, right? I, I can't do shows like America's Got Talent or Britain's Got Talent because what if they decide, and we all know this, they kind of sort of decide sometimes what acts they want and don't want and what, you know, what kind of they're going for for the next season. Is it going to be a singer that wings? Is it going to be a magician? There's a little bit of that going on behind the scenes. Yeah. So if some young guy comes along and he beats me out, it's like, hey, I'm the guy that beat out Banachek. I'm better than Banachek. So I've got that is sort of in the way. It's extremely complimentary. The amazing Randy once said in an interview one time, I heard him say, he said, somebody said, when do you think you've made it? And he said, when some young person comes up to me and says, hey, I'm doing what I love and I have an incredible career and I've made a lot of money and a living because of you because you inspired me. I get that consistently from people. I consistently get from them where they say to me, you inspired me. I saw you, I didn't do magic, and then I want, that's all that I wanted to do. And now I'm making a living. Now I'm performing at theaters around the world. Uh, now I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm in the college market. Uh, oh, I'm doing those things. And I hear that consistently, and that really makes me feel good that I've left that kind of a legacy and that people are doing what they love because I inspired them. So that's really nice. So when those people drop my name in that, it's really nice, right? I mean, I've inspired them to be creative, to do something they love. So that's, it's nice. Have you ever, has anyone ever uh, like done a little performance for you and you've not known how they've done it? So anyone ever, you know, like Penn and Teller have got like fool us. Has anyone ever fooled yeah. you, I guess, would be the same. I, I can't give you a specific. There are times when, like, if somebody's doing a bunch of car tricks, after a while, my brain just kind of, like, goes, okay. But I know the basics of it. I may not know the exact effect. But usually when it comes to stuff like that, I don't care to try to follow through and figure out, are they doing this move, that move, this move, this move. I just try to enjoy the moment with the trick itself. Um, I'm Knowing that if I taped it, I can go back and I can probably backtrack and figure out the trick at some point. But there is just bigger illusions and big things and stuff like that. No, not really at this point in my, my career. No. It's one of those things as well. I guess there's so many ways to do the small things. It's yeah. Like there could be 200 ways to do a card trick or whatever. 
you're not yeah. going to be bothered about learning all 200 ways to do it, but you know the basics of you do this, this, and this, and that's how you get the outcome. Yeah, it's interesting because people always think that I know every single mentalism, the thing that's out there, but there's so much that's being created that there's no way. If I, if I was just to study and read consistently everything, and there's so much crap out there too, but if I was just consistently try to read everything that was out there and put out there, I wouldn't be performing. I don't have time for that. I don't have time to keep up with those things. Uh, I want to be creating myself, so I don't have time to constantly look at everybody else's creations. I get so many uh, e-books and things and stuff like that from people that they want me to look it over. And usually they want me to look it over because they want me to say something so they can use it as a quote. I just don't have time. Even my best friends send me stuff, and I don't have time sometimes to look at it. It's not that I don't want to. It's just I only have so many hours in a day. It's mad because I think people don't uh, always take that into account. It's like when you're at the top, you're getting a lot of stuff coming in. And obviously yeah. you can't, it's impossible, do you know what I mean, to, to be able to read through yeah. it or look through it all. And uh, from like, obviously I'm I'm only like a small podcast or whatever and I'm like reaching out to bigger people and they probably get bombarded with with invites and, you know, can you come on my podcast? Can you do this? And I sometimes am right. a bit like, for God's sake. Why aren't they messaging yeah. me back? And you think, actually, it's because they've got 100,000 emails potentially from people asking them to come on their podcast and stuff like that. So, yeah, uh, I mean, we had, we, we had to do uh, outlines today for uh, one thing. We had to do some contracts. We have uh, we, we, we're writing another podcast. We just put one out last night that will be aired. Um, we, uh, I've, I've got um, I'm working on a possible residency somewhere in the United States uh i've got three tv pitches that are out there right now and it looks like a couple of them are going to go so working on that consistently and then i've got a couple of other things that i may be producing as well so it's just it's just all these different things you're being pulled in so many directions that it just you can't do everything you know so how come you started your podcast anyways what kind of inspired you to go down that route well, I have a blog, uh, Manichek's Journeys in the Mind, and um, that's online. It's on Blogspot. And I kind of, I don't know, it's just, uh, my friend Tyus does the Libertarian podcast, and he's absolutely fantastic and brilliant with it, and he has all of the equipment. And it was just that thing of like, why don't we just do a podcast? Why don't we, you know, we've been meaning to do it for a while. I've been wanting to do it for a while. It gives me a chance to talk about things that fascinate me. Uh, I didn't realize how much time it was going to actually. It takes a lot of time, but it doesn't take a lot of time. You know that. It's, yeah. it's that kind of thing. If you, I, I want mine to be more informative on things. I wanted to talk about, you know, uh, the human mind and just different things and breakthroughs that are out there. So we're trying to go in that direction, but that takes time for research as well. And I don't always have time for that. So um, and we have a lot of interesting things that happen in our lives between the journeys that he does and the journey that I do and uh, the people that we know. So I don't know. I just thought it would be fun to, to share that and, and get that out there. My Twitter account um, used to be just brain facts. That's all that it was. It's changed now. And that changed because when I was uh, on A&E uh, they, and uh, when I was on uh, the Spike TV as well, they wanted us to tweet consistently while the episode was on. So that kind of messed that up because it used to just be brain facts and now it's all about the show. And as a result from there, I use it a lot more for self-promotion to let people know where I'm going to be, where I'm going to be performing. Um, I'm, I'm not going to actually be home 
till October 27th right now because I'm out for different shows all over the United States, yeah. Busy schedule, man. It's, it's good though, you know, good to be busy. Oh, well, you know what? I'm lucky, right? Uh, a lot of guys that are performers, they don't get to make a really good living at this. I do well with it. I, 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 I'm very, very blessed in that way. So I'm going to ask you, obviously you don't have to give out the, the main answer, but how do you go about like reading people's minds, as they say, the illusion of reading people's minds? Is there like yeah. uh, things, little movements people do? I know I saw your, it was on Netflix, Joe Rogan Questions Everything, and you were yeah. saying how you did like the circle and then like the triangle and how you like limited people's thoughts to thinking of the circle and the triangle. I don't know if you remember featuring on yeah that. yeah that was way back that was maybe uh, joe joe rogan's questions everything or joe rogan's quest i don't remember exactly the name of it um it's on youtube um it's a little bit of that but it's more magic it's more you uh, look so chris angel does tricks with beautiful women and big illusions right david copperfield same thing uh siegfried and roy they do did illusions with lions and tigers uh david blaine with coins and cards and stuff like that i do tricks with information so everything i do is a blend of verbal nonverbal communication magic psychology and perceptual ma manipulation big emphasis on the magic right so that magic could actually be a, a, a psychological thing that I'm doing. It could be sleight of hand. It could be just misdirection. It could be a multitude of different things. I don't want to take the mystery away from people. But what I do want them to know is that I'm not a psychic. And I don't believe in psychics. And I think that many psychics are cruel. I think the mediums that are out there and I, all the big ones that are out there in the UK and in the US are scum. They're taking advantage of people in a vulnerable moment in their life. They're stealing their money, and they're leaving people in despair. They're, they're, they're basically putting a halt on the grieving process. A grieving process is part of life. You have to go through that. You have to go through those stages to stay with the living, to be happy with the living. If they stop and they put a halt right there, you're now stuck in this area, and you're not healing because you have to heal through that process and they're not allowing people to heal yeah they're making people feel good for a while that I can give crack to a junkie it doesn't mean it's good for him right and so I, I find those things horrific here's the thing about me when I go on stage I look like a real psychic people go well what's the difference you're really reading minds so I become the authoritative figure on stage as to what it is that I'm doing am I really a psychic am I not a psychic if I tell them I'm a psychic they're gonna accept that if I tell them it's all NLP, they're going to accept that. That's a lie. You cannot do what we do as mentalists with NLP. You just can't do that. It's, it's, it, well, not to that, the point that we do things, right? So that becomes a lie as well. So I have to let them know that, hey, this is not real. I'm not doing it by this one method. These are the methods that I'm using, but I'm not going to tell you which one it is because I want to keep the mystery. I'm not going to expose what I do. I also think that for performers, the moment you start really lying and saying that you're doing one thing that you're not doing, whether you say you're psychic or NLP or something like that, the moment that you do that, you leave yourself open fairly for somebody to expose you. When you come in as a magician, magicians come in, they, but just by the very nature of saying that you're a magician, right? You kind of put yourself under a contract with people to know that they're going to be fooled. They know you're not real. It's almost exactly the same as if you're doing uh, a play. 
You know, some magicians sit there and they say, you wouldn't stop in the middle of a play and say, oh, wait, I'm, I'm not really Macbeth. Well, of course you wouldn't because it's context. They know it's a play. They understand it's a play. When they see a magician usually on stage, you know, sawing a woman in half and doing these tricks, they know it's a trick. They know it's not real. But when they see somebody like me or another mentalist on stage, they don't know if it's real. They have no context. So I feel a responsibility to remind them, ladies and gentlemen, this is not real. This is an illusion. And I'm using certain techniques to duplicate what psychic phenomena would look like if it was genuine. Like I said, I, I, I had a million dollars for any psychic that could do anything under proper scientific control. It was a James Randi million dollar challenge. And I never found a single psychic that, that could. Most of them are self were self-deceived. And the moment you put it under proper science, it fell through. Others were, very few of them were actually purposely trying to use trickery to try to fool us. That rarely happened because those people know they could get caught and they're not going to come to get the million dollars. And the big wigs, the really big wigs, already making millions of dollars. They did not need our million dollars. So I'm going to ask you if I know you can say no, uh, if you'll do like a trick for me at all <laughs> to try out no. or anything. You can say no, it's cool because I know you're not like yeah, a donkey. I, 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 yeah, I say it's not that. It's just that I'm just, I have a migraine right now. Like I'm working through that today. I did say, yeah. And, yeah, yeah, and so the conditions are not the best for that. So I'd yeah. rather not right now. Yeah. What are your views on um, Darren Brown? Because obviously he does a lot of stuff over in, yep. in the UK. I went and saw him perform and uh, at the White Rock Theatre in in uh, my town, and um, he's works like eerie. I, I don't know whether he kind of goes on like a bit of a darker route with it. Uh, yeah. I can't really explain it, but like he done the um, the sitting in the chair thing. I don't know if you which, ever saw which, that. Basically, like. Which You'd sit in the chair, like everyone would sit in the chair. They play like this uh, video, and, right? Um, apparently, it was like a subliminal thing, and then he'd like try and get you to stand up, and some people wouldn't be able to stand up, and things like that. Right. And, uh, it's kind of like an eerie aspect, I guess. Like. Um, yeah. Well, Darren comes from a very hip, hip, hypnotist background. Before he was a mentalist, he was a hypnotist. So those are feats of a hypnotist. And he has done a very good job of blending the hypnotism and kind of like moving it into the whole mentalism area and blending those two things together. I think Darren is pretty much one of the first people to do that consistently. I've, I've had a few things um, in my early days that I would use some of the hypnotic type things of – uh, falling backwards. I'm going to make you fall back with the power of my mind, uh, which is an old hypnotic stunt, really. So I did a few things like that. Darren is absolutely brilliant. He's done an incredible job. He's uh, my psychological studies books, you know, their early days, I think a lot of the stuff was based on that. I, I know they had read some of them, and I know they've done a few of my bits and pieces, uh, which, which are out there for people to do. But they've always taken those things and dressed them up and created something really, truly new and new, uh, uh, new and unique. Um, and when I say they, I mean Andy Nyman, which is Darren's right-hand guy. Andy's fantastic. He's a fantastic actor and that over there. I uh, did uh, ghost stories and a few other things. Just an absolutely brilliant, brilliant thinker. So when those two get together, you know you're going to see something amazing. You're going to see something creative and something original. So, um, you know, kudos to Darren. I, I, Darren's a friend. Well, he and I, uh, we met years ago. Uh, we had known of each other, of course. He knew about me from when he started getting into mentalism. I guess I'm, I'm a little older in that arena than he is um, and probably a little older than him. 
And uh, we met at FISM, which is a big, huge magic convention. And uh, it, it, it was we were in uh, we were in uh, Stockholm. And while we were there, and Darren also used to do pickpocketing. So we're sitting there, and a friend of mine gave me some whiskey, a bottle of whiskey that I thought he made himself, and I thought the guy owned a castle. And turns out I misunderstood the guy's accent. He didn't live in a castle. He didn't make his own whiskey. He built, basically bought this big cask of whiskey that he would, and he gave it to me. So Darren and I are drinking it. I'm, I'm pickpocketing people and giving the stuff to Darren, who's sitting two seats away from them. So they're thinking, wow, Darren's really great. You know, he's pickpocketing me. He's not even near me. And he and I are laughing. I have some great pictures of him and I just having a really fantastic time. And uh, we did talk a little bit magic, but usually the people that I get along with, um, as in the case with Darren, we don't talk magic at all. We don't talk any of it. You know, there were moments at the convention we would, and there was a point where Darren said, well, do I need to pay you to consult for me? And I'm like, no, 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 that's, that's free. And, but most of the time we hung out, we just laughed and joked about everything but mentalism or magic. Nice. Um, so I've gone out of, uh, I'm, I'm out of questions for you now, but um, the floor's yours. Uh, if you want to talk about anything or mention anything, it's fine. Advertise the, the hell out of yourself and where people can find you. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm, here, I'm here to sit back and listen now. So yeah, the floor's yours. Go in. Yeah, well, I, I don't have a whole lot because, uh, you know, like I said, we're, we're pretty eclectic with the things that we are doing right now. But definitely watch out. I mean, go to Banachek.com, which I feel weird promoting, but it's part of what we do, right? Um, which is my website. You can, you can pretty much find all my social media there from Facebook. Uh, I'm, I'm everywhere. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, I'm on Google Plus, so I'm, I'm all over the place. Just get the spelling right, B-A-N-A-C-H-E-K. Or if you just look up... Uh, mentalist and try to spell banachek the best way you can in google you know and it'll show up it'll definitely show up uh, keep an eye out because we have a lot of surprises coming a lot of great things coming down the line um i'm probably going to end up writing uh, a book for the public coming up all my books have been really just person uh, for magic teaching magic and stuff and i got one or two of those left in me after that i don't think i'll do another book for magicians but never say never right um we're going a lot more into the mainstream now so it's um i've got a lot of things i want to do i've got some things i'm the first guy to ever be buried alive six feet under the ground and dig my way out to the surface I'm uh, 58 now, uh, and uh, I'd love to do it one more time. It'll probably, it'll probably be what kills me, but what's more appropriate, right? I'll already be in the ground. <laughs> I, unfortunately, I shouldn't, I shouldn't joke about that because people have tried it and have perished as a result, but they didn't, re they didn't know what they were doing. It's always the illusion of danger. You've got to take out all the dangerous elements. Uh, the bullet catch that I, I gave to Penn & Teller years ago that they closed every show with, that was the illusion of danger. Uh, it, you know, it wasn't really dangerous. It was just that illusion of danger. And even Houdini understood that, that it's about the illusion of danger. It's not about necessarily doing dangerous things. So I, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm keeping busy. And if anybody wants to bring me to the UK to come do a corporate gig, I'm all for it. Gives me a chance. Gives me no, gives me a chance to see family, friends, or anything. I'd actually like to come over there and maybe do a little tour of some theaters over there. I, I've been thinking, I've been juggling and playing with that in my mind, um, just because I have family, I have friends. I don't get to see them that much, and they, some of them have never seen me perform live. They just haven't. It just because 
the logistics of it. So to come over there and do that would be really, really great. And, and, and especially before I end up getting a residency here in the United States, because then it's going to limit where I can go and what I can do other than dark weeks. So uh, I did have something that was planned at one point, And then I had a TV series that came out that I ended up having to do over here. And I had to cancel that. So who knows? Maybe we'll come, do it. Come to the UK, man, because I'll come. I'll come watch. I'll come support. Good. I have a Banachek T-shirt at the front. <laughs> you can bring all your little, you can bring all your parties with you. Yeah. When no, I say parties, I mean the people that listen to the podcast. Yeah. That's probably a new term, right? Parties. Parties. We're, we'll get great, there we go. We're gonna. Yeah. If that takes off, you and I said it first, right here, right? <laughs> people that listen to podcasts and call parties. Yeah. To all my parties out there, do you manage your own social media, or is, uh, is have you got someone else in charge of that? My manager, Tyus, uh, works with me on it. I, right now, I do a lot of it myself, um, but he tends to, you know, I run things off him before I put it out there, and it's getting to that point now where I'm either going to have to get somebody to do it, or Tyus will do it for me, but we'll probably end up getting somebody else to do it for me. It, it'll all go through me, of course, because I want to, you know, branding is really important when you're in the entertainment business, and I want to make sure that everything that goes out goes with my brand so that's really important and that's been an area where i personally sometimes lack because i get so enthusiastic that i just want to let people know what's happening and things like that and i don't think about it and i don't think of the consequences sometimes of putting stuff out there but i've got a good team around me now um ties is surrounding me with really good people and uh they're all watching out for me so that's the thing so here's the thing right if somebody write, I, we get sometimes i get people sometimes who will write to me and not all that email goes to me. It gets filtered. And so sometimes people get really upset because I don't get back to them. They think I'm being rude. And it's just not that I'm being rude. It's one, either I didn't get the email and it was filtered out, or two, we had so many other things that we were, were business related that we were trying to take care of first that I just couldn't respond to that. Or three, I planned on responding on it, but you know, a couple of weeks have gone by and I haven't been able to. Um, so yeah, it's, um, I don't know. I got a good team around me is all I can say. And they're, prote they're very protective. Cool, man. I'll uh, put your social media links in the video anyways below. Um, Thank you. For YouTube so people can click on them and check you out. Um, if you're available to talk for just two minutes off camera after we um, yeah. Fold this up. That would be cool. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So, so wait, 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 oh. wait, 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 wait. So tell me about you. About me? Oh, good. Yeah. Pressure. Pressure. Um, oh, you do this all the time. So I, I yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe some stuff your listeners don't know. Um, so right? I'm 26 years old, obviously based in England. Um, I work in a gym at the moment. I'm piss poor. <laughs> As a lot of people. Uh, I don't have a great net worth um, and I'm just trying to, to build a, a recognizable uh, podcast via YouTube, really. That's sort of my right. main aspect. Um, I was running my own fitness business for a while. It didn't do so well. Um, so, yeah, now I've kind of gone into the podcast world. And obviously, it's the JB podcast on Instagram, which I've been trying to build the brand um, brand up on, on just Instagram at the moment. And, yeah, that's it, really. Obviously, I like football um, and some magical stuff. Like, I spend a lot of time watching um, Penn and Teller's Fool Us on YouTube. Late at night yeah. and things like that. Um, and yeah, I'm just into my sports. It's hard to talk about yourself. Do you know what I mean? Really? Oh, it's really? really? Yeah. You expect us to do it all the time. Yeah, I know, see? I know. <laughs> Under the pressure. Um, yeah, no. So that's that's pretty much it. Obviously, I love my dog as well. I've got a dog and a girlfriend and things like that. Uh, normal kind life of dog. things. What um, kind of dog? He's a jug. So he's a Jack Russell cross pug. It's a small little okay. thing. Um, no clue what that is, but all right. All right. 
I'll show you. I'll show you a little photo of his face if you can see it. It's quite big. Oh, let me get that out. Oh wow, cute. Yeah, you'll yep. be able to see it more on YouTube anyways if uh, if you ever cop the video on there. But yeah, that's basically it really. You, you should do a whole it. podcast with just holding that up as if it's you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my dog look a lot alike. You know how they say that happens, right? <laughs> so Banachek, yeah. tell me about yourself. <laughs> that, that, would be, that would be great. You should do that to some guests that you have on one day. Just see what they do. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, and I just wanted to ask you, what was it like going on the Joe Rogan podcast, by the way? Oh, it was brilliant. It was absolutely. He's a, he's a fascinating man. Um, got to go to his warehouse, and that's a fascinating place. He's uh, you know deprivation tank inside there. He's got a, a a huge long area where for archery and a workout area, and it just just a, an incredible, interesting human being. That's that's my main goal for me is to to be invited yeah. on the Joe Rogan podcast. If I get there, I'm done. Bury me. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> the goal has been reached. I, mean, I can't say that because that means I'm done and you can bury me now, but no, no, no. Um, he's just an interesting character, and I ran into him a couple of times in the past, and every time I run into him, he tells me how I changed his life and way, his way of thinking about certain things, So, which him and Duncan. So that's always an extremely nice compliment. Um, and, and, you know, we, we were talking about doing it for a while, but we didn't have – we had things to promote, but nothing really big that we wanted to promote. And it got to that point where it was sort of like – hey, we should do it now. Let's go do it. And, and so we did. And I'm glad that we did. And hopefully we'll be back there someday. Yeah. Oh, man. I, I, what, I, he retweeted one of my podcasts once um, through Mick West, who he'd had on his show. And that was like pretty highlight for me. I was just like, yes. <laughs> Joe Rogan's seen one of my podcast episodes and retweeted it. Great. So, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, we, all, we all have uh, moments and highlights that stand out, I guess. And that, that was mine uh, so far in the podcast world. But, yeah. Um, cool. I appreciate you putting me under the grill for for a few minutes. <laughs> you're more than you're more than welcome. Yeah, yeah. Your, your people know more about you now. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Thank you for your time, man. As always, really appreciate it. Um. I'll chat to you off camera if you want to add anything yep. in, or are we we done. We're done. Uh, we're good. We're good right yeah. now. But let's do this again someday. Uh, yeah, we've been uh, about fifty-eight minutes, so I think uh, I probably need to get out here because I got to get to that other show. Um, but let's let's chat again in a few months, and uh, we've got a lot more stories we can talk about. Yeah, no, hundred percent, man. I'd love to have you on again. Feel free to message me, just saying, come on, and I'll just make time available for you because you're you're massive, you know, big superstar. Oh, thank you. <laughs> That's very kind of you. Thank you. Cool. Um, yeah, <laughs> so I'll chat to you off camera. Cheers for coming on. Really appreciate.